Um, this is my first pandemic. Um, so here's what I'm going to say about this. Um, this pandemic, COVID-19, is going to take from you. Okay, it's going to take from you. In some ways, it already has, right? Some ways, it'll be trivial. Like, you may have been wanting to watch an NBA game this week or this weekend, and you're not gonna. In some ways, it won't be trivial. It'll be total. Like, some people are gonna lose their lives and have already in other places and even in the United States. Um, Or you might lose someone so close to you that it feels like a total loss. And then for some of us, it'll be not total or trivial, but it'll still be pretty tragic. It'll still be a big deal. Like, you'll lose enough income that— it'll make it really difficult to make ends meet, or you'll lose a job, or some people, their businesses are close enough that this will kill their business. This was their dream for their future and their retirement and their present, right? Other people will be so isolated that they'll fall back into some addictions that they really needed people around them to help them with. I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways things like this create really tragic results. There can be some kids that are going to get into trouble and end up with records and go to jail because they're not in school and playing sports and doing stuff that, like, harnesses their youthful energies. There are a lot of ways in which this is going to take from us, okay? And so instead of taking it sitting down, one of the things that we could ask ourselves as Christians is, um, is there anything that we can take from it? What can we grasp and take for ourselves, for our good and for the good of others in this thing? Is there some way that by the grace of God, we can benefit from, profit from, be strengthened in our spiritual self, like something really good? Romans 8.28 says that for those who have come to God in faith and have become his, love him and are called according to his purpose, that he works everything. No matter what, what it is, there's a way in which his providence is working in it for a ultimate good towards us in some way that if we're open to and interested in, we could find out. And it's also true that throughout the entirety of the Christian tradition, spiritual pastors have so taught us that there are ways in which pain and tragedy and suffering may be the only ways that the human race will learn certain things. Not the only ways the human race can learn certain things, but the only ways we will learn certain things. Um, one of the ways uh, one Christian, C.S. Lewis, said this was he said um, that pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Let me read you the quote from The Problem of Pain. He said, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, even C.S. Lewis thought that that sentence felt like a useless cliché when his wife died of bone cancer. It It depends on how you hear it, and what it really depends on is how much work the word deaf does in that sentence. That's what matters. It's God's megaphone to a deaf world. The question is how much work the word deaf does. It's because none of us think we're deaf. None of us think we're spiritually blind. Jesus' metaphor of choice wasn't deafness, but blindness, right? We've been studying um, 2 Peter 
chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, and in it it says, if you forget that Jesus died for you and you've been cleansed from past sins and your life isn't shaped by that, you become, and the phrase says, so nearsighted as to be blind. Like, not literally 100% blind, but so nearsighted in your selfishness and your misunderstanding of your existence that you function as though you're blind because you're so nearsighted spiritually, right? It's such a disability that you can't move around. And only the gospel can cure you of that. Lewis is just using a different metaphor that there is a kind of deafness to us, a spiritual tone deafness, a spiritual really dense wax in the ears that makes it so we just don't respond to the noise around us. The whispers of our pleasures, the speaking of God into our conscience doesn't work. And only pain is loud enough, right? So that begs the question, can we be persuaded of something that would make us so deaf, right? What is that thing? And how does it function? And there's, there's lots of possibilities here. Some of it is just our sinful nature and our selfishness. There's lots of opportunities. But in an affluent, Western, materialistic, consumeristic culture, I think that one of the best answers to consider directly is one given 200 years before C.S. Lewis was even born by Blaise Pascal. And he said that our deafness essentially came from diversion. that we just want to be diverted from reality. And in so doing, we pay attention to the diversions and how they please us, rather than the realities that we need to face. He says this in the Ponce's diversion. Being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. And in a philosophically materialist and functionally consumerist culture, those diversions tend to be what, Pla- what Pascal called us licking the earth. It's, it's our, the material things we put into our lives that divert us from these larger questions and the things that God would like to speak into our conscience. But he has to actually shout to us through our pains. Jesus called it mammon. And he said, to the extent to which you embrace it, it's another God. It's another religion. It's a whole other way to live your life and see the world. And you can't have two masters. Because if you have two masters, you have two religions, and you can't worship two fundamentally different gods. You will love one and hate the other. And his assumption was not like it's a 50-50 split, which one you'll love and which one you'll hate. You will love mammon, and you will hate the God who does not focus on giving you mammon, but focuses on giving you eternal life through a transformation of the soul and spirit and heart and mind. And so in, in, in a context in which, in mammon, we are diverted to not think about many things we don't want to think about, which creates a spiritual deafness. Sometimes it is only what endangers or destroys our, our material diversions that can shout over the wax that's in our ears. What we need is a grounding fear, a sobering fear, right? Um, let me— let me tell you like a hypothetical story to try to clarify this a little bit. Imagine you are like a lot of American teenagers and you like to—well, not American teenagers, like all Americans, and like to walk around engrossed in your phone, the little magic rectangle that makes you happy, right? And you're walking around and you're like, you're catching up on your memes or something, right? And you think in your peripheral vision everybody else is crossing the street with you, but you kind of miss it, and you walk out and you don't realize that you've walked out in front of like literally like a coach bus, Okay. And somebody who's behind you yells, watch out, 
as they run out and tackle you to the far side of the bus, but when you fall, they fall on top of you and break your collarbone, okay? Now, when you feel that pain of your collarbone breaking, and it shoots through your system, an emotion is going to accompany it, right? And I believe that in that situation, the material difference is which direction you turned when somebody yelled, hey, watch out. If the bus is coming from your left and you're walking out with your phone in your right hand, somebody yells, hey, watch out, and you turn busway and get tackled, and you land and your collarbone snaps and you feel that pain, the emotion that's going to accompany that pain is, ow, thank you so much. And if you're holding it in your left hand, and somebody yells, hey, watch out, and you turn and look over your right shoulder and get tackled, crushed, and you break your collarbone, the emotion that's probably going to come up with that feeling is, you idiot! Why did you do that? You're so stupid! Because the pain and the truth come together one way, and the pain and increased blindness, pain doesn't itself wake us up. Only when it's combined with the truth can the pain get our attention and press in the truth that we need to see. Because you see, it's not just that it's worth the pain. It's also this. What if the guy tackles you but doesn't break your collarbone? They just tackle you and you like, just hit the ground. It kind of hurts. You see, it, it may be that you'd cross the street looking at your phone three months from then. That's the lesson that Jacob learned when he wrestled with God. God didn't just wrestle him all night to show him that he can't win, but that God won't be brutal with him. At the end of the wrestling match, the angel of the Lord touched his hip socket and gave him a permanent painful injury that caused him to limp the rest of his life. So God showed him in this night-long wrestling match that ended with that injury, you can't beat me. The reason you think you can wrestle with me is because I won't brutally destroy you. And yet I'm going to teach you that nobody who wrestles with God wins. And it's decently likely you'll end up with a limp, and you need to understand that, and I want you to remember that the rest of your life. And the Israelites tried to remember it, so much so that every time they killed an animal, there was a, a tendon in the hip joint that they would put aside and throw away, and it was out of reverence for the fact that their forefather, Jacob, had wrestled with God and been hurt by it and learned a lesson, and they were trying to remember that lesson because they know the minute you stop ritualizing the remembrance of that lesson, the deafness of diversion sets in. And so one of the things that we have to remember is um, we don't know, we do not know the will of God in its entirety, in his secret will that he is bringing forth in this provenience of this disease in the world. We don't know the purpose or meaning of this pandemic. We shouldn't pretend to know. There are certain things in the secret will of God he does not tell us. And it's likely that he has several billion things he's working in all of this, in his purposes, and that even if we—there was a seminar on him explaining it to us, we would respond to it like most of us would respond to insert academic subject you have no interest in or capacity of understanding, right? But in God's revealed will, what he has told us to take from situations such as this is to recognize that every trial is a kind of test, but not in the—not in the paper test, 
But what a, a trial is a test that not only do you pass or fail, but you become something different in the test itself. It's kind of like your, your sports team going to the playoffs, and like you win all the way through. You don't just pass or fail every game. The game itself transforms you for the next one, and you become a champion. You actually weren't a champion when you started. And so it, every trial, morally speaking, tests the human heart. It tests whether we'll have faith and trust God or turn in on ourselves. It tests whether our God is mammon or the Lord. Every trial is a test, but it's a test that is a trial that forms and changes you and makes you as you respond to it. And that's what this is. And so for the next few minutes, um, what I want to look at is a few of the things that we should take from this at this preliminary and beginning stage of this trial. Because most people think this is going to get worse before it gets better. I hope it's totally fine. Nobody gets anything. And we're all back to like, you know, whatever we want to do in a couple of weeks. But it may not be that. And whether this is all there is or whether it's just the preliminary stages of something more, I think this is the lessons that we should take now. Okay? The first is we should take from this the sobriety that nothing has really changed. We were just diverted. Human life has always been like this, full of fear and terror and death and not knowing what was going to happen to you. Every human being all the time has always lived like that. And the fact that we didn't think life was like that comes from the fact that we were diverted in our affluence and our mammon, and we were deaf to the suffering of the rest of the world that has been going on while we've been eating Sundays and milkshakes and watching video screens. In 1948, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay about people's anxiety over the fact that now there was an atomic bomb. And at any moment, atomic bombs could get dropped on people and everybody will die. And that is kind of this constant anxiety that everybody has. Listen, if you're a millennial and you have not felt that a lot, listen, I'm a Gen Xer, okay, my whole childhood was that. It was like, Russia's gonna kill us all, and we're all gonna send missiles back and forth, and we're all gonna die, right? That's one of the reasons why I'm a little crazy, probably. But I've, I've updated the language in this. I want to read you a little portion of the essay. This is what Lewis says. In one way, we think— In one way, we think a great deal too much— about the likely pandemic's result. How are we to live in an age of global disease? I'm tempted to reply. Why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in the age of Vikings when raiders from Scandinavia might have come in the night and slit your throat any night, or indeed as you're already living in an age of cancer, an age of AIDS, an age of paralysis, an age of terrorism, an age of hurricanes, and an age of car accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all who, whom you love were already sentenced to death before nature invented this present disease, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but that we have still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because globalism has added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. 
If we are all going to be destroyed by a global pandemic, let that disease, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting with our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about contagions. They may break our bodies. Microbes have always done that. But they need not dominate our minds. You see, if we trade, if we trade the diversion of mammon for the diversion of terror, so that that's all we think about, we don't actually experience the grounding fear that brings us back to the realities of human life, existence in the world, the gospel, the spiritual truths that we're meant to attend to, and the, the purposes of God himself. We just move from a pleasing diversion to a dramatic terrorizing diversion, and back and forth and back and forth. And nothing ever good happens to us. There is no—the megaphone never gets through. The second thing is, is that we can become sensible of our vanity and shallowness in our diversion. We can become sensible of our vanity and the, our shallowness in our diversions. Pascal said this in the Ponce's, Men spend their time in following a ball or a hare, meaning a rabbit. It is the pleasure even of kings. Right? I could insert here a basket, a ball, or a football, or a hockey puck. Right? Men follow silly, vain, vacuous things, and you spend their attention on it. Listen, your TV show doesn't matter. None of those people are real. None of those things happened. None of that changes your life positively. It's meaningless. It's no consequence. It is of no significance other than it's eaten up untold hours of your life. From the pursuit of friendship, of loving others, of investing in the purposes of your soul, of knowing the scriptures more deeply, of preparing yourself for difficulties that will come about, of building in yourself deeper competencies by which you can work in the world and be productive and help others. It's of no consequence. The video game is of no consequence. It can have some small portion of a dignified and restful leisure, but that's not what we're really using them for. Not 25 hours, 45 or 55 hours a week. Pascal goes on to say this, the only thing that consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet it is the greatest of our miseries, for it is these above all which prevents us from thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to spiritual destruction. If you wake up from a hypnosis, and you realize that you had just spent either a small period of time or a long period of time hypnotized and doing the will and bidding of others, the first thing it behooves you to do is to find out how you got hypnotized and how you're going to prevent it from happening again. Right? If Superman gets mind-controlled by blah, 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 villain, the minute he gets unmind-controlled, the first thing he's got to figure out is how not to get mind-controlled again. If you realize that you have been languishing in the stupor of diversion and wasting your life and becoming shallow and brittle because of it, and you realize in the megaphone of fear, of a grounding fear that that's been happening, the first thing you need to do is figure out what diversion has done to you and how to never be hypnotized by it again. 
I wrote a book on this called Substance. You can get a copy of it. Um, but the, the only way really to long-term escape diversion is to pursue something that, that we're meant to pursue, purpose and depth and godliness and spiritual discipline, right? Which is, leads us to the third thing, is one of the things that we should take from this is to either receive or re-receive Christ's greatest gift. To receive or re-receive Christ's— and I don't just mean accepting Jesus so your sins can be forgiven and you can be saved, but to accept some of the deepest implications of that that are relevant to this moment. Let me read from Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, that is, humans, he, Christ, too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps. Because subtext is me talking, because angels aren't going to physically die and aren't under the power of the devil. Right? Back to the scriptures. But Abraham's descendants— for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, that is, in full humanity, in order that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. What Hebrews is saying is, is in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, two things happened. In his death, he made atonement. In his rising, he revealed the fact of the resurrection for all flesh. That is all image bearers. And so there are two promises built into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One is, is, a, is that you can and will live everlastingly. That is, the part of the fear of death is its extinguishing of your existence, your being, the, the fact that you are, and two, whether or not you have a future. Those two things, your, your identity and your security, are fundamentally wrapped up in how you see death whether it's impending or far away, whether it will end you or whether you'll continue to exist, whether or not you will find security or insecurity in your relationship to it. And in the resurrection, there is a security of the continued existence of your life, no matter what happens to it. But then secondly, the question is, will that life that is everlasting be any good? Is the life to come filled with equal or more terrors than the present one? How can I be assured that it will be a good life? How can I believe that I will be under the power of God and not under the power of the devil? How can I be assured that it will be a good thing, right? And that's why the atonement is so important. That by becoming flesh and being the atonement for human beings, that is to die for our sins and through faith in him, so to set us right with God, we can know that we can enter into that everlasting life as God's possession. So that death has lost both of its fears. That it can kill us, and that it can damn us. And in Christ becoming our great and perfect high priest by taking on full humanity, dying for our sins, and rising from the dead, he has freed us, or I should say it this way right now, offered us freedom if it's combined with faith, to be free from the fear of death. Either its capacity to extinguish us, or the belief that it can damn us. And what the writer of Hebrews says is, is that 
the, not just death itself, but the fear of death in life, he says that that is like somebody holding you hostage. That, and most of us repress it through our diversions. We're not sensible. We don't feel ourselves hostage to the fear of death. But if somebody put a gun in your face, you would feel more than just the physiological terror. Most of us would feel an existential terror. And when somebody threatens even, even these won't take your life, but will take your life away, how you think about it, like your job, or your good, your good name and reputation, or something that you think is integral to your life as you imagine it, and somebody threatens to take it away, or it gets destroyed, it, you feel a terror. You are a hostage to the fear of death. And Jesus the Christ, in his death and resurrection, is offering you a freedom from being a hostage to the fear of death. And so one of the things we can take from this is in the fear that it brings— to reach out and take the gift of being freed from the fear of death that Jesus offers to us and really hold it tight, knowing that death is a possibility and always has been and is in fact a certainty. And last and fourth, is through this, we can take the courage to love. We can take the courage to love. Let me read for you briefly this passage in Romans 8, 20 to 39. And we know that in all these things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, his all, for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will be, bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Back to the great high priest, right? And then here's the conclusion that he takes from this. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right, so there's three really direct realizations here. One is everything for the believer God is working for the eternal good, even your suffering and death. You see, if you're a materialist, you can't believe that suffering and death is being worked for your good because you believe that, that wellness and life are the only ultimate goods for human beings because you're a materialist. But if you believe that the moral and spiritual state of the soul is the most important thing that there could possibly be, that that's what will be eternal, not the physical state of your body presently, then there's many things much more important than your suffering and death. And everything, even your suffering and death, is worked towards those eternal goods, which are your greatest goods. 
And secondly, he says, there's nothing that can separate us from his love, not, not even death. Death does not separate anyone from the love of God if they possess it and are in it already. And the third thing is, is, is on the basis of those two realizations, that death cannot kill you, and that God is working everything, even your suffering and your death, for your good, he concludes that even though we functionally feel like sheep to be slaughtered every day, we are in fact more than conquerors if we are convinced or persuaded that nothing can keep us from the love of Christ. And so therefore, the freedom or liberation from the fear of death doesn't just make it so you don't have to be afraid of death and so you don't need to divert yourself. What it means is that in the present moment, you will have the courage to love. I read an article this week. That I'll end with this. I read an article this week about a pastor saying, here are ways we can love our neighbors in this time. We can go to Chinese restaurants if Chinese people are being discriminated against and people aren't going there. We can um, not do things that will help spread the disease. And so love our neighbors doing that. And there were a number of things, there were five or six things that he put that were very sensible and very good ways to love our neighbors in this time. But I thought there was an incredibly grave omission in the article. I don't know if what I'm going to say is controversial. I don't think it should be, but it might be. If I had written that article, one of the things would have had to have been, you can go over to your sick neighbor's house and, house and make sure that they are fully and well taken care of. And risk yourself getting the disease to make absolutely sure that they don't succumb to it or suffer unnecessary harm because of it. Especially if you're young, not pregnant, you have the physiological leisure to do such a thing. Right? In, in, the, in the third century, the reason, one of the reasons Christianity took over the Roman Empire was because either in the Black Plague or smallpox, we're not exactly sure of the disease, when everybody abandoned even their own parents and children, Christians went into the homes of their non-Christian neighbors, some of whom who had engaged in persecution just a few years before that, and nursed them to health. Because if somebody nursed you, your survival rate was 90% as opposed to 70%. It tripled, it, it cut into one-third the death rate of the disease. And the church fathers said that Christians died serenely and with peace from the disease that they acquired, even when nursing their non-Christian neighbors, because they realized that the disease was a test and trial and school of the school of Christ. Where is that? Where is that in us? Is that here? Will the people of this state and city see something like that? I'm, I'm not literally saying that's exactly what you have to do, but, but have you driven, drawn some kind of line somewhere in your self-protection, in your in hostageness to the fear of death, that you are unwilling to love your neighbor and to live as a sheep to be slaughtered every day because you don't you don't want to risk anything. We're all sentenced to death. All of us. Can we not part with a portion of our savings if there are families that aren't going to have food in this time? There's somebody in our church that um, they were in a store and people were starting to fight over something in the store. He started yelling, praying right next to them while they 
they're starting to fight. They stopped fighting, bewildered. Like what? How will we then live if we're freed from the fear of death? Will we find the courage to love and be conquerors? It's not enough to just not be afraid. My goal is not that you'd be released from terror. That's the beginning. That's the birth canal of the solidity and courageousness of the Christian life filled with love for our neighbors and a willingness to sacrifice such that the apostle can say we're like sheep to be slaughtered. That's what we look like. But what we are as children of the risen Christ is conquerors. So yes, wisdom and prudence in all things. Yes. And if you go and, and help your neighbor, you may have— the, the result of that you may have to know beforehand is you'll have to— you may have to um, be in sequestration for 14 days. That may be the cost of it. Fine. That's the choice we make when we sacrifice. Those are the sacrifices before us. But for God's sakes, let us be awoken from our diversions. Let us become sensible of how shallow they would make us. Let's escape the rehypnosis that will come upon us. Let's not just go home from work and live in our houses and watch 250% more Netflix because we have the leisure to do that and eat food that's bad for us. Let's wake up from the hypnosis and find a way to find courage, freedom from the fear of death, and, lo and love in what we do. And to the extent which we engage in that, God's good providence will work for not just our good, but the good of many. God, as we, um, as we, as we worship you to conclude some of our time together, as after that we'll pray with each other and talk with each other about what we heard and how we can be your believers in this time, where you fill us with a certainty that you will bring us to glorification one day. And that in our assurance of that truth and in our freedom from the fear of death, that you can make us substantive, godly people, free from the hypnosis of diversion, and prepared to be courageous people of love. And we pray that the only fear residing in us would be the sensible fear of planning, but that there would be a fire of hope and desire in us to be yours in every way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.